and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And we are here once again talking about short fiction. Today we've got two stories that come to you from the late, late summer, early August, sorry, early fall time frame. They are The Privilege of the Happy Ending by Kids Johnson that appeared in the August issue of Quark's World. And Nine Last Days on Planet Earth by Daryl Gregory that appeared in September at Tor.com. And we thought that these stories had some interesting resonances with each other, as well as both being written by people who are very good at what they do. Extremely good at what they do, yes. And, and Karen's actually very good at sending me, you know, links and story recommendations and so forth. And sometimes you get a story that, you know, is kind of outstanding in its own right. But what's always fascinating to me is when you get two or more stories that just seem to be unconsciously in a conversation with each other. For these to be released around the same time, I mean, perhaps it's more about being in conversation with, with things happening in the world right now. But we thought that there was something to say about the, the way that they approach the concept of apocalypse or the concept of disaster. And I have to give give all credit where credit's due because I had just sort of sent Karen some story links and said, these are things that I thought were good over the last few months that I've been reading intensively large amounts of short fiction for, for Locus Magazine, who also helps sponsor this podcast. And Karen picked out these two stories and said, you know, these really talk to each other in an interesting way. So I think we're, we're going to try and, and bring some of that out as, as, as we discuss the stories through this podcast. So we thought that we might start with Kid Johnson's story. So, Karen, do you want to tell us, give us the kind of overview, the high level of what is this story about? Absolutely. Now, first of all, everybody knows that I have a real soft spot for the whole fairy tale folk tale approach. I was, I was already kind of pre-sold <laughs> as I started the story. <laughs> it's your, your basic um, folk tale setup. You have an orphan child. You know, she's your, in your Cinderella situation, barely tolerated by the aunt that's taking her in and the, and the cousins that are around. But she has this magical creature, this beloved pet. Blanche, the talking chicken. Now stay with me, stay with me. Talking chicken sounds like we're going down a humorous route, but, but don't go there just yet. Um, Blanche has got no. some other talents as the story progresses. and Talking's a good start, but you know, there's, there's some other talents that are going to become very important. But it's actually the, the aunt's neglect that saves um, this child's life, the child called Ada, because she has to go foraging in the forest for something to eat because you know, the aunt's not really providing for her. And while she's out there, there's this, this boy who's like running for his life. And he's like, I have news, I have news. And she's, and he kind of makes her sort of like pay for it. So she hands over a little jewel from, that she saved from her mother. And she, he says that the Wasturas are coming their way. So before I even try to summarize this, I'm going to take the opportunity to just read a piece from the story itself. Because first of all, we're talking beautiful use of language. It's one thing to read a story because it's just a cool concept and so forth. But when you can also get beautiful language out of it, I always think that's a bonus. So here's a definition according to the author. In your time they are gone, but in the 12th century, every child knew of them and adults as well. Wasturus. Scarce larger than chickens, but unfeathered and wingless. Snake-necked, sharp-beaked, bright-clawed, with little arms ending in daggery talons. For long years, there would be no Wasturus memory and dread. And then a population bloomed like duckweed choking in an August pond. Or locusts after a dry spring. Or cicadas rising from the ground each 17th year. 
for reasons unknowable, they emerged in their scores of thousands from some unknown cave or forgotten Roman mine and seethed like flood water or plague across the land. Eventually, they died off, plunging heedless from cliffs or drowning in waters too deep to cross, or else autumn made them torpid, then dead, but not before they had eaten every breathing creature they encountered. They were in everyone's nightmares, and small children feared them more even than wolves or coyotes. These were dark times for human beings. Sorry. Yes, you can see I kind of fell into that a bit. <laughs> just, just beautiful language, and I am, I am now going to move from this beautiful language to tell you that what I got out of that in summary is that these are zombie lemmings. So, oh. I totally had them be velociraptors. No, no. Later, later. Don't. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Initially, zombie lemmings. I mean, the whole plunging, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Right, the yeah. The lemming myth is a myth, but the plunging heedless from cliffs and drowning in waters too deep to cross is what gave me the lemmings. So the thing is that Ada's gone foraging in this forest, and she's gone too far now to return. So the boy goes on ahead to warn the village, and Ada can only climb a tree with Blanche and Blanche's advice. Because Blanche, mind you, this is one of her other talents, she knows that the boy is right that the Wastoders are coming. She can, she can kind of sense them coming, and this is importantly her own. So they spend the night tied the tree branch, and the Wastoders go by, ravening zombie lemmings. And, next time, and then the next day when um, Ada and the chicken get down from the tree, there's this little exchange just before they descend. Are we safe? said Ada. We are never safe. Blanche. Everybody, remember that, okay? Becomes important. Oh yeah. Um, yep, that one's important. <laughs> so when they get back to the village, the village is just like in pieces. Everybody is is dead, and like torn pieces, dead or or just like run off. You know, Blanche again advises Ada, who, by the way, I should mention, is only six. You know, so we're talking a very, very um, small child protagonist. She just uh, Ada scavenges some food and necessities, and then they go on the road and they see. Other destroyed villages, other traumatized refugees. Um, you know, one case they pass a village that's untouched, but their men were heavily armed and guarding it, and they avoid that one because Blanche said no. And while while this is all being described, here's here's the line that is another kind of um, very key line. All authors leave a squawk of destruction. We name and move <laughs> on. The privilege of the happy ending is accorded to. So, of course, I've included that because the titles are there. Who can avoid that? But, again, it's a little something I just want you to put there and um, we're going to return to. You also have this reminder that, and, and the narrator is very present in this story, that the tale is set in the 12th century, but the narrator is very aware that the readership is not set at the same time. So it's a kind of a, a different sort of folktale fairy tale because the ones that we read from the past or set presently but acting as if they're from the past are sort of more geared towards that very old-timey feel. But, you know, here's this, this interesting bit. Um, after disaster, when we are adults, we survive if we can. We are hungry, we are cold, we are sick or injured. We save what and who we can. There is fear and loss and crippling grief. But we do not have time or energy yet to fully reckon our dead. We must think about tonight and tomorrow, portioning out the phone's charge, and our only bottle of water, tallying the last seven doses of our heart medication, now six, now five, 
period start, whether we have tampons or not. Diapers need to be changed, even when there are none. But someone will come. We will hear helicopters, trucks, see red crosses and crescents. We will be safe. When we are children, alone, in the heart of horrors, we do not know this. So it's an amazing piece of modernity that just has, you know, intruded into the story that speaks directly to the readers of now in a, in a very unapologetic fashion and, and kind of makes you realize that, you know, you're not at all in the usual kind of folktale. You really aren't. <laughs> um, the narrator is, is not doing the traditional thing and you need to change your expectations accordingly. We're now grounded to expect the sensibility, the sense of, of present day peril, even though this is an old timey story. So yes, you have your talking chickens, but we don't have a situation of no threats or consequences. And we're also very strongly reminded that Ada, she's a protagonist, yes, she's the chosen one. And according to narrative convention, you pretty much expect her to come out alive. But she herself doesn't know that. She knows she could die any moment. And she's in a world that doesn't have helicopter-level rescue services. So, you know, she really knows that she could die any moment. And you are told that early enough so that you can take almost like an additional sense of dread as you go forward into the story. So now you have almost like the, the sort of three, three encounters format, which I like, you know, very traditional again. Three stops. First, the unlucky village. And this one looks as if, you know, it could be promising. There's, there's definitely trauma there, but there's this man called Robert. He's lost his wife and daughters. He's already taken in a boy who was injured by the Wasturas. And he looks at Ada and says, yes, you know, you can stay with me. I have, I have room. And you think to yourself, okay, this is, this is maybe a little family that found family that can come together. But then, the boy's injuries start to fester. And Robert kind of looks at Blanche and says, you know, that's, that's um, chicken broth and stewed meat. And uh, that, that could save the boy. So Ada's like, no, you can't kill my talking chicken. And he's like, yeah, seriously. And then Blanche is like, but no, seriously, don't eat me. <laughs> and at that point, everything goes awry because, you know, talking chickens definitely need to be killed, exercised, and then made into soup. So um, Ada and Blanche decide, well, let's, let's go on the road again. So while the boy was raving um, in his delirium, he talked about something called the Lucky Village. So the Lucky Village is supposedly one the Wasturas never come to, for whatever reason. So they, they actually find it, um, even though they've been warned that the villages there are very unfriendly, very careful about not being overrun by, by refugees who come into their safety. But um, this time, you know, Ada frames Blanche's talents as her ability to do tricks. And one of the useful ones that now emerges is that she can predict the weather. So the villagers are like, oh, okay, you know, this is useful. And, the, and they kind of stay there for a bit and, um, you know, things seem to be fine. And mind you, there's, there's a very strong sense of, I would call it superstition in the village because they know they're lucky, but they don't know exactly why they're lucky. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's part of the landscape. There's a, there's a swift running stream that has a big curve around them and so forth that protects them from the Wastura attacks, but they're not sure exactly what it is. So they're really kind of, um, very nervous about anything that's going to destabilize their luck. Right. They're, they're, uh, very focused on piety because yeah. they're, 
the best they can come up with, really, is it, obvious, obviously they're just more devout and, and pious than everyone else. And, and not, even, not even just that, because even the priest is like a little afraid of them, because the priest knows that even if he kind of steps out of line, mm -hmm. know, then they're going to be like, well, wait, you're not protecting us as you should. So, so he's actually quite careful. But, but then Blanche realizes that, well, they're starting to almost like rely on her even more. They're like, what do we need to do to make sure that we stay safe? And she's like, I don't know, talk to your priest. And, and then she's like, no, 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 say something. So she starts reciting a Latin prayer. And the <laughs> priest is like, no, that's, that's it. That's enough. He's like, that's an abomination. You are a beast. You are a soulless beast. That you should not be reciting the prayer. And, and this time the villagers actually side of him. They're like, oh, wait, no, wait a minute. Now we've gone too far. So unfortunately, Ada and Blanche get evicted from the lucky village just as another fresh wave of Wastodres are coming through. So at this point, Ada, who is six, just panics. And Blanche has been like telling her what to do, advising her. Even Blanche's voice cannot get her to move and do what she should. So Blanche is just desperate at this point, And she just like kind of yells at the Wastodres and discovers, this is the point where everything changes, that the mother hen voice that she used to order her chicks around and that she sometimes tries to use on Ada, but not has much success, actually controls the Wasturis. So this is the point where I have an epiphany. Blanche is the chicken version of I Am Legend. She is an evolved <laughs> dinosaur facing down velociraptors. And, and that was why it was that. Right, other evolved <laughs> yes. dinosaurs. So there's a drop of sci-fi in my fantasy, and I just love that even more. So thank you very much, author. <laughs> Um, so that, that was, um, the I Am Legend one was, was one reference that we saw there, but I'm going to ask Karen to talk about another explicit book reference for the story. Right. And, and Kitsch has, has done this a lot in, especially in some of her more recent fiction. Here, the eight, the relationship between Ada and Blanche is, it's a, a total shout out to Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. In one of the sequel books, Ozma of Oz, Dorothy um, and her uncle get, uh, they're, they're traveling to Australia on a steamship and the storm comes up and Dorothy gets washed overboard and survives by hanging on to a chicken coop with a chicken named Belina, who once they land on the shores of Oz, which Dorothy is like, oh, yay, this, this works out great. Uh, Belina, turns out, can talk. And is very smart and very canny and sometimes hears things that Dorothy doesn't. And they have a great rela relationship and they have all these adventures and eventually rescue Ozma, the, you know, the, the queen of, of Oz. And it was one of my favorite of the Oz books growing up. And it was, it, it literally took me a while. It was about halfway through the story when I was like, oh, Ada's Dorothy and Blanche's Belina. Now I get it. And but again, the the dynamic is different because Ada is so much younger. Dorothy is at least ten, ten or eleven, or you know sometimes even a little older. And so Dorothy, a lot of and she's been to Oz before. So a lot of times it's Dorothy driving the ship. Here, Blanche, I would say, let me know if you disagree. Blanche has most of the agency. Well, do you know it's, she it's makes you say that most of the decisions. There was a point where I was like, Ada is actually not the protagonist, is she? Blanche is the She's not. Blanche, the talking chicken is actually the heroine of the story. And Ada's the sidekick. She really is. <laughs> so, you know, I made that adjustment and then things began to fall into place. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, because Ada, I mean, every once in a while, like when they came to the Lucky Village and, and it was Ada's idea to be like, and here's my talking chicken who can tell the weather. Mm -hmm. 
that was not something that Blanche really had had planned for, but it you know it kind of worked for a while. That relationship is is a little bit different um, simply because Ada is realistically very young. Yeah, very realistically, <laughs> she's not precocious at all. Yeah. So um so yeah so so in, into our into our story again. As I said, we have now determined that Blanche is an evolved dinosaur bird facing down Velociraptors, and and I've described them before as zombie lemmings, and they do in fact seem to like as it say, go mindlessly in, in one direction or go over cliffs or drown themselves and so forth. So when she orders them to turn around and run away and run until they die, that's exactly what they do. They run straight and steady, they don't pause or divert, and they drown themselves in the next river that crosses their path. And Blanche is aware of this. She doesn't, she doesn't witness them visually, but she's aware of this through some kind of bird, dinosaur, telepathy. Um, she doesn't tell Ada. She doesn't want to express <laughs> her too much. But she's like, "Oh wow, I can do this. This, this is that works. Yeah, that works." <laughs> so, so I mean, you know, they, what, where where they are at this point, um, they they come across this group of children who have built platforms in the trees as a way to to stay out of reach of the Vosburus. And this is their third stop. They had the unlucky village. They had the lucky village, and now this is their third time stop. And you know, according to folktale tradition, this could be where you know, with this almost Neverlandish kind of feel of children making a society that Ada stops and, and, and manages to survive for a bit. But but Blanche is, is thinking beyond that now. She's like, wait a minute, we don't have to hide in the treetops. We can we can stop the Wasturis at the source. The group that she sent to die did have a leader. She knew that they had a leader who had a similar kind of controlling voice. And she overcame that leader's voice to tell them to go and do something else. And she's now thinking, you know, I can figure this out. If if that leader has an alpha leader and, and kind of there's there's got to be like an ultimate alpha. And if I go in and confront that one and I can just like get them all to do my bidding, I can just make them wipe themselves out. Very ambitious. But mm-hmm. that's what she decides to do. So in hunting for, for this sort of, you know, ultimate alpha, they end up going to um, the the ruins of this this Roman villa and finding the underground lair of the queen, as it were, of the Wasturis. She has a very successful showdown with the queen and orders all of them to kill themselves and to kill each other. Pretty much commits, well, I was going to say genocide, but really it's sauricide, right? <laughs> and, right, and, uh, well, yeah. And the... And the, there are a few survivors, you know, there are a few more eggs that hatch out and so on, but they've, they've still got that almost like the effect of, of Blanche's voice has been so strong that even in, in Ovo, they have picked up some of the vibrations. So the last few survivors just eventually dwindle away. Here's, here's my last little bit that I so much enjoy. It's almost like an I am legend touch again. Pearl feathered Blanche spreading her wings is a nightmare that everyone shares, stained into their genes, feared more even than skin rot or water. Hers is a name too dreadful to utter in daylight without blood spilled to wash it away. She is a monster, the monster, destroyer of worlds, wasted. Who calls a thing genocide? Not the aggressors, anyway. Blanche is monster and savior, depending on who you ask. So this is this is um the, the Wastur is now legend of Blanche, the, the few that, as I said, survived before they eventually dwindle and completely go away. And it's so fantastic that one of the names they gave her is Waster, because 
as we were being kind of geeky and thinking, this this word wasture, how are we going to pronounce this darn thing? <laughs> <laughs> Karen went googling and I went googling, and we were like, oh wait a minute, this is some this is some good you know old English. Um, sorry, this is English. no, this is solidly Dos. yeah, specifically solidly Middle English, yes. <laughs> and it means waster. Wasture means waster. So they have in fact given her the name that was given to them by humans. And I just I just found that fascinating because of course this is just a species that's trying to survive and eating because that's what creatures do. And here is this maybe side descendant, I don't want to say it as that descendant, who has just completely wiped them out for the humans. It's it's really kind of shocking when you think about it. So you know, that's pretty much where the story ends. But even the ending is still not quite an ending because all throughout the author has been giving you... Wait. Go on, go on. Before we dive into some of the more nuanced parts of this story, perhaps we should switch to Gregory's story and then we can get into some of the nuances of all of them. So yeah, it kind of ends there and I will finish off the summary here and we will hand over to Gregory. Okay. So in Nine Last Days on Planet Earth... Daryl Gregory brings us something that is very explicitly science fiction, and it's got a very interesting structure, and it's it's a very tight, just like uh, The Privilege of the Happy Ending, it's a very tight character focus in the middle of an apocalypse, but uh, Daryl, on, even on Twitter, you know, very explicitly says, this is my slow-moving apocalypse story, and in fact, it spans time between 1975 and 2062. So it goes from the past into the future. And what we've got is nine vignettes from one character's life. And the character is LT. And we start when he's 10 and a meteor swarm falls, but it falls across the entire Earth. And it turns out that all these itty bitty meteors that are that fall, you know, as the Earth rotates, it hits more and more and more and more and more of the Earth. They're all basically seeds of alien plant life. And as the the time progresses, first you see LT when he's 10, and then 11, and then 12, and then it ends actually when he's, I believe, 98. <laughs> we feel the impacts both of LT's life and of these alien seeds as they start to grow and invade and they're they're the definition of an invasive species except there are millions of invasive species each seed seems to do something a little bit different and some of them succeed in their ecological niches and some of them don't and they're adapting to to earth life and earth life's adapting to them but you get all that science fiction story in the background of LT's story and basically what happens is LT's raised in a pretty, you know, his his dad's kind of a a very um, conservative Southern guy, and his mom's sort of an artsy, free spirit. So right after the meteor swarm, um, his parents divorce. You get to see him with his mom as she's like, "Woohoo! I get to date artists in Chicago." <laughs> you you get to see him with his dad, uh, and his dad's like, "You should learn carpentry." <laughs> And, you know, you see LT with a mom and mom's new husband, and they, they travel out to, to Kansas City to see how some of the invasive species are, are adapting out there. And LT starts to really hone in on this, you know, that he is kind of a natural budding scientist. 
and wants to study this kind of thing in, in college. You get to see him in college, especially the day he uh, hooks up with his his, uh, his lover. We'd started to, to realize he was probably gay in, in one of the earlier scenes. We, we meet we see him when he meets his um, eventual spouse. We meet, see him when he and his uh, his spouse Doran have adopted a baby from Papua New Guinea, which is where LT had actually done most of his postgraduate work. LT ends up becoming basically the uh, deputy secretary of agriculture, basically the deputy head of the USDA, who. Obviously, he's a pretty important figure in a weird way in a in a world covered by invasive alien species. They adopt, you know, so he and his husband adopt two children. He's estranged from his uh, religiously conservative father, but also goes back to his father when uh, it turns out he has cancer. And also that a little a little plant guy that LT had rescued, a little alien plant guy that LT had rescued, basically taken over. Uh, his dad's entire house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very interesting imagery that follows that little plant guy as it grows and grows and grows. It's obviously following the the uh, narrative of the overall invasion of Earth. You see where LT has a big family Thanksgiving where his, his daughter's grown up and she's doing her own studies in biology and sort of elbowing her dad's like, haha, I've caught stuff that you never caught. <laughs> but you also learn that his husband died young. And then you, again, you get to see him at age 98, sort of looking back at his family and, and being a little confused about who's who, but, you know, looking back on kind of an entire life and an entire career. And it's, it's one of the things that Gregory does best, which is tell these two stories and where a lot of authors would tend to foreground the world building and the science fictional story with the characters kind of shoved in the background and maybe you get a little characterization here or there. Gregory's telling you the character story. And if you pay attention, you get the science fictional story that's unfolding in the background over these 80 years. And I just want to say, because I'm, I know what you're going to say. And I I got, I got to, I'm going to say, I'm going to just give you a little lead up. I was reading this thing and I was talking to Karen, but I'm like, Karen, I'm just like looking closer at these particular choices he made. Why, why is it so front loaded into his like childhood and younger years? And then, then she just started to like make like eeping noises, and I was like, "Okay, something good is coming." And now she's going to tell you what it is. <laughs> it's the Fibonacci sequence. Yes. Literally, so the spacing between the years of LT's life follows the Fibonacci sequence. It's it's one, and then two, and then three, mm-hmm. five, eight, thirteen. It, it's it. And the thing is, that actually, that makes sense, because you change so much more as a young person. Mm. And, and obviously, it's not universally true. But if you're sampling, like that makes a certain amount of sense. Now that I know that that's what he did, was he based the, 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 the scene selections off, off the Fibonacci sequence, he doesn't hide it. He references the Fibonacci <laughs> sequence in, in the scene where LT's in high school. Word for word, just in case you might have missed it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yet it's still, I only caught it the second time I, I was going through it where I was making notes to myself that, okay, this happens in this scene, this happens in this scene. Hey. <laughs> and I have to say, the same way how I appreciate certain conventions of 
of fantasy when I read folk tales and, and when I read The Privilege of the Happy Ending. I similarly hugely appreciate that kind of convention of sci-fi where you can have that kind of in-joke <laughs> of, of maths or of physics <laughs> or of, of astrophysics, just sort of like hiding there for the geeks to notice. Yeah. Right. Now, some things that we should note. So again, you've got this very tight focus and, and I think two of the most important resonances between what we're talking about with Daryl's story and what we're talking about with Kid's story. One is the different apocalypses. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean... Kid Johnson's is... It's immediate. It's yeah. so immediate. It's like we literally have, you know, like, bloodthirsty creatures that are going to run and rip us to shreds in within, like, seconds. And we have to... Yeah, yeah. when you're talking about zombie lemmings, these are fast zombie <laughs> lemmings. <laughs> you know the whole fast zombie versus slow zombie thing? Yeah, these are... Extremely and 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 the language that kids uses is is very much like a wildfire it's a natural disaster you have to run or you're gonna die and it comes in waves but you can't predict them um it is a natural disaster you know obviously with daryl gregory's story you know people are still having thanksgiving yeah, 40 or 50 years after after these invasive species have come now you learn that from the conversations that people have in in the story, you learn that there's massive famines. That's not too surprising. <laughs> uh, you learn that the oceans have been colonized. That uh, you know is sort of a late twist in a weird way. You know, you learn that that people are dying. That that uh, not everybody has. You know, and I think even in that Thanksgiving, he specifically says we're so privileged to be able to still have anything resembling a normal Thanksgiving. His his husband dies young. It's somewhere in his 40s, apparently. But there's a hint at the end that thanks... So with his work, he'd, he'd done quite a lot of you know, studying in the initial sort of biosurveys and kind of trying to get a grip on what had happened. You get the feeling that because of his daughter's work, they might actually... You know, humans have to adapt to the invasive species as much as the invasive species are adapting to Earth, and they might possibly be finding ways out of the famine to you know adapt to basically to be able to eat some of the invasive species or use them in some other ways so there's this whole story going on in the background now that's really what i wanted to get to before karen went into the meta commentary that happens in kidge's story because i know that's where you were going well <laughs> meta-commentary in Hidge's story is a lot about the author reminding you that when you get a story, what you get is a bundle of author's choices. Which character to follow, which um, aspect to smooth over. It's not history where you're going to be very objectively saying fact, 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 fact. Although I think we, we can both just say that we understand that history History as told by historians is also a matter of choices, but yes, go on. I know we both know that. I just don't want anyone yeah, to think we don't know that. But let, let me split it another way then. It's not what I would call objective history, which is to say, not what is reported, but what has actually right. um, come to pass. What has actually um, you know, been, on, been, been present and, and been experienced and been lived through, even if it hasn't been recorded. By the time you're telling a story, you are making choices. You are deciding who's the heroine, who's who's going to live, who's going to die, or maybe maybe you know even a question of whose death is more important to show on stage. So the meta commentary does a fair bit of 
going sort of off stage and pointing out various minor characters and saying, well, you know, this one lives till whenever. A whole ton of it. A whole ton of it, yeah. This one lives to whenever. This one is going to die very quickly. And this one is, you know, these are not necessarily characters that you would have needed for the sake of plot or for the sake of the character development of the main people, you know, which is like, say, Ada and Blanche. You don't need to know. And then there's even some some back history. There's this really interesting kind of back reference to um, what they talk about. They mention Roman mines, and then there's also this reference to the Roman villa. And you get this sort of sense of, you know, when you're looking at this 12th century um, sort of fictionalized Europe or, U or UK, sorry, England really, it's, it has a, a memory of a better time, the, the time when it was an outpost of the Roman Empire when it was possible to have houses of central heating. So you, you have, you have this, this idea of, you know, here was a better time, even a, a safer time, a time with more knowledge, a time with more, you know, craft and so forth. But then at the same time that, that she gives you that, she also gives you the backstory of the builder of the Roman villa being concerned about the, um, the foundations because there were like small holes, caves, and that's of course where Blanche goes to have the showdown with the queen. Sends in a small child because the hole's too small for an adult to go in. So sends in a small child to sort of like go through and check to see, make sure there's not like huge caves underneath or whatever, so they can go ahead and build the villa. The child gets lost and never comes out. The builder's like, eh, I'll build anyway. And they basically like, yeah. the child's dead. There, you know, and they build the villa over it. I, I, and there's this, there's this entire side thing which has nothing to do with Ada. Just talking about this, and it's like an example of. Yes, here was this more so supposedly enlightened time, but it still had its cruelty, and it still had its vulnerable people who could be just snuffed out. Well, I I liked the I I liked the note that that orphan, who's an orphan like Ada, was eight and oh, yes. and was considered completely sacrificable. Exactly. And of course, Ada is only six. Yes, exactly. Again, sort of reinforcing just her utter vulnerability throughout the story. If you ever feel exactly to think, oh, she's a protagonist, she's going to live at the end. No. Utter vulnerability. So now, because you know that people's deaths are constantly referenced there, you begin to understand that death doesn't just come by the apocalypse of the ravening Wastura. Death comes in many, 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 many different ways. Comes to, well, and comes to everybody. So when it comes to the very end, it's like, she says, you know, they're, they're long dead. They're already dust. Blanche was already an old chicken that stopped right. and and Ada, I could tell. She said, you know, Ada, maybe she had a long, happy life, surrounded by her descendants, and she died. But maybe she died of you know childbirth, a plague, of dysentery, lack of antibiotics when she like cut herself with a knife, you know. And and then you're just sort of like, okay, yeah, this is cheerful. But she's like, you know what? <laughs> no, and and all triumphant. So I'm gonna end it here. Here's the privilege of your happy ending. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, no, the, I think one of the key sentences in the last paragraph, and and we're quoting so much from Quidge's, Kidge's story because I had the exact same instinct that, that Karen did, which is like, there's there are these key lines and, and you can't summarize it any better than the author did herself. A happy ending depends on when the end is written, by whom and for whom. For the purposes of this tale, then, the end. And the other thing I wanted to... So one thing I really appreciated... She starts some of this meta commentary in, in in relatively the first scene. So you you've Ada's gone out. You, we've seen the set the scene that Ada is an orphan and um, neglected, 
and and now the boy has come to deliver the news that the Westorias are coming. In a paragraph that is usually and otherwise dedicated to world building, now she has to explain what this Westorias are and why we should be scared of them. She adds this aside. Okay, so it says, Westorias. Perhaps you have not heard of them, you people born a thousand years after Ada and Blanche and this runner, whose name is Hardort, though his part in this story is nearly over. His name will not matter to you, though it matters to him. In your time, they're gone, but in the 12th century, every ch child knew of them. Um, and then it goes on to give you, you know, that, that zombie lemming slash velociraptor <laughs> description. And, and you get a lot of that. You know, this person who runs by... Do they die this way? Do they die that way? And and at one point, she literally kind of challenges the reader, do you care? Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> the lucky village when she's like, you know, are you upset that, that you know, they basically tossed out a child to die? You know, if, you, if you're feeling upset, you can imagine they, they, you know, suddenly their luck ran out and the Wasturis, you know, ran them over and that was the end. Or perhaps you want to think that they reformed and learned something and, and had, you know, a marvelous existence and long harvest and, and you know everything was was marvelous and and I was like gosh you know this is like and, and this is it sometimes the author is telling you this is what happened to them and then sometimes she's saying to the reader well what do you want what's going to make you feel better if I tell you x or y do you, which one do you want which one which one will will make you feel satisfied in the story and then you start to feel I don't want to quite I don't quite want to say a little guilty but you start to question certainly challenged yes <laughs> you start to question you feel challenged yeah. Why, why do I want it to be like this or like that? You know, I, I, I'm really just sort of making it sound very general, very, not, not summarizing it very well, perhaps. When you see all those choices laid out, it, it becomes a very much a broader story of understanding, as I said, all the perils of this world. Of, and the Wastur is just being one of those perils. And then you look at Ada, as I said, who is six and who she has already pointed out is a child in the midst of horrors who doesn't necessarily think that rescue is going to come. And there's a line as well, again, where it said that Ada is accustomed to hard truths because she's heard them so, so many times. I am looking for that line and I can't find it. Darn. But yes, Ada was accustomed to hard truths. And you can see... Even though in many instances, you know, Blanche is advising her or pushing her or prodding her or what have you, you can see where these hard truths have made Ada very risk averse, very cautious mm -hmm. in her life because she knows that there are many perils and those perils will lead directly to death. And now to just sort of link back to Nine Last Days on Planet Earth, there were two things that really stood out to me, really stood out to me. So... In the first bit, in the meteor storm, when the, when the seeds first come down, there's a scene where LT's mother picks up, like, the, the empty shell of, of a hatched seed. And she's like, oh, don't worry, it's cool, isn't, isn't it? Doesn't this look amazing? You know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Mom, no. She laughed. It's okay, my darling, it's cooled off. She held it out to him, a black egg, flecked with silver, etched with spirals. Now, Coming to this after having read the story, I was like, what are you <laughs> doing? Put it down. You know, it, it was, <laughs> it was like, oh my goodness. There's another story that I remember, and I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this for anyone, but I just encourage you to read the full story. And it's The Green Glass Sea by Ellen Clages. Mm, Child, mm -hmm. um, her father is basically one of the um, 
scientists working on the initial tests of the of the, um, of, the hydrogen, of the nuclear bomb, and where the bomb site is, there are these um, the sand is melted into glass, and he picks up like a stone, like a melted glass pebble, and gives to her as a keepsake. And there's this scene where she's kind of cradling it to herself because you know this is something from her father who's been like absent because he's been working so hard, and, you know. And all I'm thinking is. It's radioactive. Get it away. Get it away. And it's this amazingly weird, horrible feeling of, on the one hand, it's supposed to be a touching moment, but then on the other hand, you realize how dangerous it is um, because you have knowledge mm -hmm. that they don't. And when I when I actually read that scene in, in Nine Last Days, I thought, they must be like this. You know, here she is so blithely. Oh, don't worry, it's cooled off as if heat could be the only problem with it. You know, <laughs> and and I was like, what level? Again, you you talk about privilege. You talk about about feeling comfortable but not feeling vulnerable. But that is so the opposite of being risk averse. That's so kind of like, oh, here is this thing that I know nothing about, but I'm so sure it's not gonna hurt me. I'm gonna just like put my bare hands on it. I'm like, wow. And hand it to my ten year old. I hand it to my ten year old. And 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 you know what? Honestly, I, I, you know because. In in a way, his parents' reaction uh, you, there's there's a moment where they're like, oh, look at the meteor shower, and they're like, oh, this is getting bad, and they actually build a shelter like in the fireplace, which is the most bomb-proof part of their house uh, that that they can, and and sort of they literally put him in the fireplace, and they the they're close by, but they're not, you know, you can only fit so many people yes. near a fireplace. Okay. It, that makes sense, right? You totally understand, but I do understand that. If you're in a a world that is not imminently harmful to you, and you're raising a kid like that, like I I can see where I would be sitting there going, well, nobody's told me this is you know horrible, so let's let's pretend for the kid that this is all cool. No, wait, stop, stop. Um, oh, but then she does it again. Then she does it again. She does. So then the next scene when he's eleven, she smuggled home one of the fern men. It was four inches tall. Planted in a paper coffee cup. Sorry, that's me quoting. So, you know, he says, because he's basically, I guess, got a bit more caution from his conservative father. Isn't it illegal? He asked her. But he knew the answer and he knew his mother. His, her reckless instincts worried his young Puritan heart. <laughs> I love that bit. <laughs> and, and then, you know, so they're, they're like, they've, they've kind of saved this fern man. This is, they're supposed to be reporting all the invasive species they come across. And they're just kind of like, you know, sheltering this, this, this little whole creature. And this is the, this is the, the plant that ends up, he, he ends up taking it. Well, after his mother breaks up with that boyfriend, he ends up taking it back to his father's house. It, his father initially, with a bit more sense, like, you know, makes a half-hearted attempt to burn it, which, you know, he doesn't follow through with. And well, but, that was, that was a, actually, that, that scene, where the father starts to, that was a heck of a scene of, of an adolescent challenge and a parental resistance. Yeah. That was a, the emotional dynamic between the two. Yeah. The thing is, when I summarize the story, I hit the high structural points. Uh, if you look scene by scene of the emotional relationships between each of the main characters, and obviously LT is always the center. In the first scene, you get not just hey, there's a meteor storm and this is what's happening. You get the dynamic. It's set right there in this relatively brief scene between his, him, 
his mom, who's a super free artistic hippie spirit, his dad, who's a super, con- you know, conservative, uh, uh, you know, Southern guy, and the fact that they're about to get divorced. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that relationship is not going to, not going to last too much longer. Mm-hmm. And, and when, uh, when there's the confrontation where his, basically, LT has been reading all these science books and also still going to Bible study at yes. church, mm-hmm. uh, but starting to rebel against the Bible study at church. And it's like, I see how things evolve. And his dad's like, screw it. What if I burn the plant? <laughs> and, and LT, I, he actually breaks down. And he's like, he gets so upset, he starts to cry. And his dad, you know, bless his heart, relents. backs off and saves the plant. He actually relents, which is is gonna play out in the later part of the story where LT's gay and his dad does not come to his commitment ceremony to his husband because he and his husband actually get married before gay marriage gets legalized in the United States, the way the timeline goes. But when, you know, when LT... When LT hears that his dad's in trouble and he, he or he hasn't shown up to church in a while, um, and he goes down to, to, to see, you know, his, his dad, his dad still loves him. Uh, he's not quite sure how to show it, but when, when, uh, LT introduces his dad to his brown skinned adopted daughter, you know, they're talking around, you know, talking like, like friends, like family. His dad is trying to play the hard line, but can't give up the fact that he's got, they he knows, that he's got family. Um, it's a it's a more nuanced playing out of that relationship than you see in some stories. Um, in some stories, the dad would always be one hundred percent the bad guy, and that is not the way he's played. And and in that scene, you get the seeds of that. And again, because of the time span of the story, you know, Blanche's story might encompass several months. I'm not entirely sure how long she stays at each. Well, the Lost Boys, she only stays with for like a day. Feels like days. Um, Honestly, it feels like days or weeks at most. Right. I mean, you're talking like summer, she, and it? and with the it seems like the summer and with Ulf, uh, the kid in the unlucky village who's dying, that could only she could only have been there for weeks, maybe month or two in the lucky village. Again, I'm I'm a little unclear. Mm-hmm. The whole thing has to take place in well under six months. And and again, you've got you know fast zombies. <laughs> that are that are coming it's a lot more intense because daryl's story unfolds over the course of 80 years you only get these hints and you are constructing an entire story of a man's life and a world's evolution through gestures through hints through sketches the fact that you can make a story like that and make it work <laughs> is is a very interesting um you know it's it's a matter of craft and let me just say there's one quirk of LT and his family that spoke to me deeply and that is their habit of telling people things oh yes <laughs> look the, at this cool the, thing the i found out geek, geek atmosphere in that the total geek out the way the the night that um lt meets his future husband doran you know they they're calling two of his straight friends got him together with doran and you don't know exactly whether they were trying to set them up <laughs> but you're kind of betting maybe they were trying to set them up and this is back in the 80s mm-hmm. 
That would have been like super progressive. And Doran just goes on this drunken rant about space bees. <laughs> and if you've got all these invasive species, where are the space bees? Because flowering plants in on our world did not uh, emerge until you had bees to pollinate them. And he goes on this whole tear, and it's so cute. <laughs> And then when he has a daughter, and that daughter also grows up to be a scientist, they go around Thanksgiving dinner, and do they say the things they're grateful for? No, they talk about the cool thing they just found out that year. <laughs> you're right, you're and right. It's a real strong given, family trait now I think about it. Yeah. it, it you know, I, I, I found it immensely charming. And, and why is it charming for me? Because I raise kids like that, so I totally get it. <laughs> Yes, 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 definitely. But again, you know, the, the, the contrast between the apocalypses, the contrast between a life where even though, so the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but it's more of a hell in a handbasket over there than it is here, and maybe we've got time to adapt, which is the world we literally live in right now, right? Global warming is happening. Climate change is happening. It's worse in some places than it is in others. It's worse for poor people than it is for rich people. How do you live in a world that is trying to adapt to massive change? And Gregory's actually just introduced this alien force to dramatize that versus, you know, the 12th century where you have many more immediate threats to your immediate well-being. And one thing I also thought, it, it was not overplayed, but it was played just to the right amount. You know, Ada saw her parents die. So when she, when the boy that Robert had also brought into her house, in, into his house, was dying, Ada's like, yeah, wow, that looks a lot like my parents, or at least one of my parents towards the end. Like, this is not going to end well. <laughs> she's She's not... She, the, the concept of death is not in any way new to her. The death of children or the death of adults. And then you add this very fast-moving natural disaster to that mix. It's a, it's a very different dynamic. It's extremely different. And you know that you're looking at, um, looking through the eyes of people who are quite different, on different faces of the scale of vulnerability. But there was something that I noticed in both stories. We talked about how some of the, the death and, and so forth is at a remove in terms of um, how the, the slow apocalypse is affecting Earth. You know, there's this horrible things happening in Indonesia and some of the qualities of some of the invasive plants there and so forth. Um, you can tell that there's definitely hardship with, within um, North America that um, Elke and his family are somewhat insulated from because of his relative wealth and privilege. But there are also still indicators of things that can't be escaped. You mentioned his husband dying young. Um, his father um, had had cancer. And there's a mention of cancer in, in Kish's story as well, um, talking about the owner of the Roman villa. Mm, died, mm -hmm. died, of, um, died of cancer, had tumors on his throat. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, wow, it's just like, <laughs> you know, because Fabricus obviously would have been the rich, privileged person in the context of this, this um, folktale and the backstory of the folktale. There are certain things that he can't avoid or run from or be insulated from either. So there's still, even even though from the, the protagonists are, are quite different um, sort of points of view, the world itself still has levels of 
peril even for those who are insulated. Well, and and I should note because especially for American readers, this this would stand. I I, I believe this would stand out when LT hears that his father might be ailing and and uh, grabs his daughter and heads down there to to see what's up. He he crosses checkpoints, state line checkpoints, mm. which so I have. It said pretty casually, and and also that hey, they're bringing food, just you know, so just to make sure they don't have to rely. Side restaurants, I'm like side restaurants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. You know, the idea that somebody who has a relatively secure government position would be like, oh, I better bring food. I don't want to trust the restaurants along the way. I mean, I, man, I've driven for three days and just I, you know, yeah, I might bring a snack, but I. Don't think I would run out of restaurants. In fact, can I, can and I there read, is. Can I just read this line. This line kills me. Duran didn't want LT to travel south. All those famine refugees landed in Florida, and the citizen militias in Texas and New Mexico. Oh gosh. You know, right. You know. So it's there. That's the only line. You know. It's like gosh. You know. There. But that's one of the nice things about Gregory. And they're so accustomed to it. It's like yeah. You know. And you are realizing that. It, in addition. There's there's something about everyday living, especially when you are cocooned to a certain level, that just sort of makes all the other stuff happening. <sighs> oh, it's that uh, one remove, isn't it? It's that one remove. It's like, oh, that's happening mm -hmm. itself. Oh, that's happening in Indonesia. Oh, that's happening to other people who have to go to roadside restaurants. But we got pullers. You know, it's it's it's. Sometimes I don't know how to feel about that. Um, right, right. He, I do when he says think... something like, his Department of Agriculture credentials would get them through any checkpoint. It's like, that's the language of privilege. Any checkpoint. That's the language of privilege. Right. Yeah. Oh, Karen, we haven't even, we're getting towards the end of our time, but we have not talked at all about how either of these stories uh, resonate with um, with Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation oh yes. trilogy. <laughs> Is, Sorry, Area is, X trilogy of which Annihilation is the first. Alien invasion, alien invasion of, of um, sort of biosphere, but with far more drama. In fact, there's almost more of a Wastura feel, although it's, a, it's an actual, you know, future biohazard. But it's so, yeah, the, 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 the Area X that is kind of the center of... Uh, of the yeah, the annihilation or the Southern Reach trilogy, I'm sorry to give it its more proper name. Um, it's so limited that it feel it has that you know uh, nine last days feel that well this is an interesting thing. We should send some scientists to investigate it. It's not immediately going to change the entire world. And and I remember um, you, you and I had a pre pre conversation. You know, even in the second book of, of of the Southern Reach trilogy, where they really do focus on the the bureaucrats, right, who are who are trying to control this scientific mission, um, it's almost like LT is not the bureaucrat who has to control Area X. He's the USDA guy back in Washington who's deciding whether or not to send Area X any more money. Yes, so even more out of remove. <laughs> Even more at a remove. Yeah, this is true. This is true. <laughs> now, now, one thing I, I should um, I should say between Daryl Gregory and Cage Johnson, one thing you'd mentioned at the sentence level, you said, you know, this might seem like a throwaway sentence, or it's almost a throwaway sentence. The great thing about both of them 
there are no throwaway senses every line or you will lose so much oh my goodness yeah right i mean they they are giving you so much in every line they write and these are both on the long side i i'm i i haven't done the word count i'm not sure um long short stories or or novelettes i'm almost certain that that um privilege of the happy endings a novelette i'm betting nine last days is a short story but it might turn over into into novelette category but even then again for the story they're telling and the mood that they're evoking the level these are tight going. The world building's and they get so much world building, <laughs> and with Kids Johnson, if there's a word you you read and you don't understand, go Google it, <laughs> and it will give you even more world building. I am going to thank Kids Johnson when we get a chance to talk to her for the fact that she gave me an excuse to Google the word hypocost, <laughs> and I learned so much about architecture that I had not known before. And and with that, I should say that we are hoping to get both Kidge and Daryl in into our podcast clutches and interview them. I can't guarantee they're going to happen immediately, but we are going to do our best. Do so our this is not the last time you're going to hear these stories yeah, about these stories. You can tell, the time we had was too short to really delve into them. It, they're, they're outstanding stories. Um, they, they are amazing stories in their own right. And they also have connections that are really, really incredible to look at. It, it, it is actually, I'm looking forward to being able to extend the conversation. So that is our goal. So with that, I think, let's see. So that's going to wrap up, I think, our discussion for this particular podcast. Like I say, we're going we're gonna to try and extend the discussion. We've done that before with, with uh, different times we've gotten to interview people. And Daryl and Kidge are both delightful people. And we're hoping to bring them to you. Uh, next episode, we are thinking we're also going to do short fiction. We're also going to see if we can put together another pair of interesting short fiction. This time, Karen has been sending me some links, so I am fascinated to find out where we're gonna what we're gonna come up with. So, with that, I think we will bring this one to an end, and we will catch you next time. Until later, bye.